Okay, here we are in Braintree. I'm very excited to come to this museum. It was really not far from the station at all, wasn't no, it? No, it's a really straightforward walk through the town. It looks lovely. Very nice sunny afternoon now it's turned out to be. I know. It's a lovely time of year to visit with everything starting to get Christmassy as well. Oh, wow, here we are. God, this building's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's, I think it's an old school. It looks like an old school, doesn't it? It's really, the bricks are so gorgeous. Okay, shall we go in? Great. Oh, hello. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to Braintree Museum. Hello, hi, hi I'm Amber. I'm Rob. I'm Polly. Great to have you here. That's great to be here. We've got our National Art Passes here as well. Okay, that's great. With your National Art Passes, you are free. Amazing. Let's get going. Thank you so much. No worries. Round the corner and enter the exhibition. Oh, exciting. Hello, I'm Amber Butchart. I'm a dress historian and curator, and I'm here at the Braintree Museum in Essex. And I'm the illustrating designer, Rob Flowers, and Amber's partner, and this is... Meet me at the the museum! museum. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to bring you to the Braintree Museum because it's quite an important place in terms of textile history. It's somewhere that we've not been to together or separately as well, which I think is quite interesting. We've Mm. visited a lot of museums and galleries together, so it's nice to go somewhere new and nice to go somewhere that has a bit of relevance for what we both do as well. Mm. The textiles... They've got some interesting sort of graphic design exhibitions on at the moment. So I think we'll both be really interested in what's happening here. Yeah, I mean, I think really it's really great seeing the process and as an applied designer, seeing some of the processes that graphic designers or artists and illustrators would have gone through to have uh, produced these fabric designs. So I'm really excited to see that as well and the printing processes. Well, I'm also interested to see it with you because you've done some textile designs as well for, you know, printed textiles. But doing it with you will add a whole other element Mm. of interest in terms of that process, the sort of practical, yeah, what you actually have to do to create that. I think from my perspective, what is a shame now is that you aren't as much involved at that part of the process. Often if I'm doing a textile print or working with a print company, you basically do your design, it disappears somewhere mm. and then it comes back again. And I think what will be really interesting to see how heavily involved some of the designers were in every step of the process. Mm. Textiles and clothing are sort of fundamental and foundational in our relationship, isn't it, really? Because we met at a second-hand clothes shop. Yeah, we both worked at a vintage clothing store as we just finished our respective degrees. You were brought on by the company (laughs) specifically to increase my knowledge of vintage sportswear. Yeah, I don't really wear trainers or anything now these days, but I, at that age, when I guess was about 24, when I finished university, uh, was really into vintage sportswear and sort of how I got into secondhand clothes. In terms of what we think of sportswear is very narrow now, but actually basically all of modern dress is sportswear. Mm, Um, mm. And I think that sort of time that we spent together was sort of how uh, we fell in love. (laughs) Uh. Oh, dear. (laughs) I think the history of textiles and clothes, more broadly speaking, is obviously it's foundational to my career. It's what I spend all of my time thinking about. But one of the main reasons... I find it so fascinating is because it's so fundamental to the history of humanity itself. And I think people really undervalue that. And I think that's something that we both 
understand and both talk about quite a lot. We all engage with clothes every day, hopefully. You know, no one's really going out naked. And so that's always been a real sort of driving force for me, trying to change people's perceptions of these items. And do you think that it's because they have a function in terms of obviously clothing your body and stopping you going out naked that people think about them differently to non-applied arts like painting or sculpture that is literally just for its beauty and to be appreciated in that way? I think that's definitely a big part of the reason. But even within design history, you still would definitely previously find that clothing and textiles might have been sidelined even from that. And I think a big reason behind that is because it's an area that traditionally has been feminized. And I think that is a big part of why it's been sidelined. And that's understandably very frustrating. Yeah, I mean, I think I find textile design inspirational in the technicalities of it. It's really interesting to see a particular design or motif or subject turned into a yardage print or a textile design. Can you remember the first museum we ever went to together? I can't. That's a really good question. I'm not too sure. When we lived in Bethnal Green, maybe the Museum of Childhood because it was up the road. Yeah. But I don't know. That's really tough to think about what it might be. Um, I mean, it would be about 17 years ago now. <laughs> so yeah, it's so it's a tough one to remember. I don't know. I mean, when we lived there, I used to go there quite a lot. But yeah. I don't know whether we went there together. We've got some amazing artwork from the Ladybird exhibition. So we've entered and immediately met with an amazing wall of hundreds of ladybird books wow my god look at those it is so reminiscent of being a child isn't it yeah it's just like a particular era that they really represent and being in junior school looking at these books as well it's a real real wave of nostalgia did you read these when you were little yeah i think i think most people did didn't they i remember there being a big stack of them our junior school my god i'm Um, just looking at all the history ones yeah there's some of them that i've definitely never seen before charles ii alexander the great cleopatra i know some historians who were inspired to become historians by reading those ladybird history books as <laughs> you children. can see why as well can't you they were so exciting how beautifully drawn the images are as well like it's fantastic it's really Such great to see them all together variety yeah. of things they have here isn't it you I don't really, even i think i remember this things to make series that, i love that where you made stuff out of toilet rolls we um, definitely made i mean i don't know if we made them from this book but this here where you've got that long toilet roll and then some kind of cotton wool covered yeah. <laughs> ball on the top forming the basis of a stylized body is definitely something that we did for Christmas decorations yeah I really a cotton wool featured heavily in Christmas decorations oh yeah my... definitely <gasps> oh my god these oh I'd the forgotten about books. those I used to read those I used to absolutely love those Peter Potato oh my god, by Jane Fisher so they were all done by a girl who was like nine years old at the time when she did them and I found those so inspiring to see when I was reading them I mean I was probably even younger than nine but I made my own like book story <laughs> series after having read what so was, many of what, these was it a fruit or a vegetable I did like fingerprint people. So I guess it's like almost like the shoe people, but like fingerprints. Why have you never told me this before? I this is amazing. Know. I don't know. But I love these drawings so much, the way they're so clearly just done with like felt tips. Yeah, it's really in contrast to the other styles as well, like some of the ones that we really remember or I really remember from a kid that are really 
detailed and sort of watercolours that they have those yeah. really Did graphic... Did you read these as well? I don't God, really yeah. remember them. I think these were really, really formative for me. And I think, like, the fact that you and I, so much of the stuff that we love has fruit and vegetables on it. And it's something we talk about all the time and something you do a lot is anthropomorphised yeah. fruit and vegetables. I, I think, think like my love of that stuff. came from the Garden Gang, came from these books. Oh. That's what's really great about seeing this wall is you just get such an overview of how many different artists were working on the books, but there's one particular style that you always associate with it. So apt looking at these right now as well when there's a school group in the museum next door as well. Yeah. It? it seems just absolutely perfect. Yeah, like that was always the best day when you did a trip to the museum or a gallery. Definitely. Got your little yeah. activity sheet that you had to fill in. Besides the garden gang, which we had and I loved, I think it was the fairy tale ones that I remember the most. Like Cinderella, Little Red Riding Hood... The elves yeah. and the shoemaker. Here as well, this first ladybird keywords picture dictionary. I think I learned to read using these books. Really? That's yeah. amazing. I think I... So more recent memory is when I was at university studying design, quite a few people did projects that were sort of referencing these designs. In terms of book design, I mean, I'm assuming that these like continue to be an inspiration it was quite a landmark yeah there's a particular layout that we're sort of all really familiar with it which is that really large type on one page and then a full page illustration or image on the next page so I think that would be really interesting to see how that developed and I think it would be really uh, to have been a fly in the wall on the pitch meeting for book ideas <laughs> at Ladybird would have been really interesting to see what made it and what didn't course fishing yeah things like not just fishing in general it has to be course, course fishing. fishing yeah <laughs> and so this exhibition here is all about the creation of the covers is that right well I think it's an insight into the design process and some of the illustrators and artists who worked on these covers mm. and uh, illustrations that featured inside. So people like Ronald Lampett, who what we're looking at now is a series of covers that he worked on and inside illustrations as well as some pencil sketches as well. And there's actual correspondence from him here as well. Yeah, from so John Lee Pemberton, who illustrated around 20 books for Ladybird. Oh, it says that he was not always happy about expending his energies on children's books. Oh, that's interesting. That's really interesting, because now you see such a... With children's books, it's seen as such a lucrative market, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's a real sort of path that makes sense in terms of if you're studying to be an illustrator, that you see that that is where you could go into in terms of children's books. And as you said, if you manage to write something like The Gruffalo then mm. you will make quite a lot of money. <laughs> oh, yeah, it says in this letter, this enclosed little book on ducks, etc., is the first for a new sort of ladybird. I don't like doing them, but I do get paid a lot more. <laughs> That's interesting, yeah. isn't it? So even yeah. then it was lucrative. Yeah. So this was written in 1973. Yeah, I should very much like to be able to stop. Altogether. One of the, oh, this is interesting. One of the things which is so maddening, underlined, is the quality of the reproduction, which is now deplorable because time is money and they have to get the books out as fast as they can. Right. So it's interesting that, that what we would, when we look at them now, feel like really sort of well-designed, beautiful objects at the time. 
this illustrator was not happy about the quality of them. Yeah. Not happy. John yeah. Lee Pemberton was not happy at all not with happy the outcome. Not happy at all. And so this here is all about the very beginnings of Lady Bird books. Like, I don't even know, like, when they date back to. I do remember, like, looking at these books when I was a child in the 80s, I do remember, even at the time, they were old. Yeah. But I don't know anything about the history of the company. No, I don't know very much at all. So the story of Lady Bird began with a printing business called Wills and Hepworth in Loughborough in the early 1900s. So, 1940, they advertised a new sort of children's book, the first classic, Ladybird Bunnikin's Picnic Party. Yeah, and we've got some examples of these early books here as well, which are very different in format. They're about double the size, at least, of what we'd imagine a Ladybird book being, and are very much illustrated in uh, style of the era. And it's the use of colour is really different as well, so you have these really vibrant colours in terms of the printing process as well. The colours are just really gorgeous. They're so nice. So it's interesting that they started in 1940 because that's obviously right in the middle of the Second World War. And then they talk a bit here about shortages during the war and that led to the creation of a complete mini book. Oh, using just one sheet of carefully laid out paper. And that provided the format for the next 40 years. That's really interesting. So it was actually those wartime shortages that led to what we think of now as those ladybird books and we've got an example here framed of an unfolded oh wow ladybird book where you can see actually how you would design this as well so we've got illustrations the spreads and the typography next to it but we've got them upside down and fitted in different ways so when you fold this book together it becomes one complete ladybird book oh my god that's so clever yeah That's amazing because it's also obviously my, you know, main knowledge of the shortages during the Second World War are all to do with clothes and all of the different sort of government initiatives which were brought in to try to conserve materials in the same way as this is to conserve materials. So this is really reminding me of like Mm. how pattern cutters would need to become much more creative with the way they were laying out the patterns, cutting the fabrics, really trying to minimise waste as much as possible. It's really interesting in terms of this idea of how use of materials and being economical with materials has come back round again. and something that designers are really concerned with now and I'm concerned with in terms of thinking about how you print stuff, where you print stuff, and if you're being economical with your use of materials. I really like this cover, Adventure at the Castle, and there's a boy at the ramparts just throwing a bottle. (laughs) I don't know what's going on there, what this adventure is that he's having. Um, It's a message in the bottle. Oh, I I went to the hooligan angle that he was throwing a bottle at someone, but he's throwing it into the sea. Uh, This learning is fun one with a Two clowns, one leant over a stool while the other pours a jug of water <laughs> in his pants via a funnel. <laughs> just, is what fun. are they learning in that? I wonder. <laughs> oh, wow, look at that. Oh, wow. Welcome to the Warner Textile Archive. I'm Sophie and I'm the archivist here. This is our store where we keep the majority of our collection. So It looks amazing yeah. and it's very exciting. It does. Sophie, it's so good to finally be here and meet you. Could you tell us a bit about the history of the textile archive here? 
Yeah, so the Warner Textile Archive came back to Braintree where it was based in the Victorian period in 2004. And it's one of the largest textile archives of furnishing fabrics available in the UK for people to visit. So we're open now by appointment here for research, group visits, schools. And we have our main gallery, the Warner and Sons Gallery at Braintree Museum that's open five days a week for people to visit as well. So Warner and Sons, as a company as we would sort of know it, came in to existence in about 1870 and that was with someone called Benjamin Warner at the top of the company and then his sons come on board creating Warner and Sons in sort of the 1890s and by that point Warner and Sons are known for being the dominant force in silk manufacturing in the UK. They produce fabric for the royal family They then start expanding into printed fabrics a lot more. It becomes much more fashionable to have printed fabrics throughout the sort of 1920s onwards. And they really expand that part of the business as well. So a large part of our collection is our printed fabrics. Excellent. Well, can you show us that? That's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So this amazing, huge curtain that we have here is wow. one of our most recent acquisitions oh, amazing. it's so colorful and joyful it's really brilliant so i'm looking at sort of a patchwork of i don't know it must be close to a hundred different pieces of fabric all sewn together in various shapes sort of squares and rectangles there's like reds, yellows, greens, oranges. I don't want to question your math skills. <laughs> <laughs> but I reckon it's well over 100. Yeah. Yeah, right, and it's over 100. Don't forget, this is actually folded in half, so it's actually twice this <laughs> size. Right, it's definitely well, over so. 100 pieces of fabric then, OK. <laughs> Pretty significant. <laughs> Maths is not my strong suit. It was actually made in the late 80s, but with a lot of fabric samples from sort of the 1960s. It was made by someone called Denise Hoyle, who was an artist and... She was friends with a designer called Marianne Straub, who's a really famous designer within our collection. And Marianne Straub gave Denise loads of off-cut small pieces of fabric from Warner and Sons. And then Denise stitched it all together to create this enormous curtain. Amazing. Um, So you can actually spot like key Warner and Sons fabrics throughout it. So there's a huge, you know, oh my gosh, I recognise that kind of... uh, so Marion Straub did some stuff for the tube as well, right? That's absolutely right, yeah. yes. Yeah, so she's quite well known for the moquette fabric she produced for different trains and buses. Uh, yeah, and you can transport. really see that in some of these designs yeah. where it's got that really, I remember as a kid getting on the district line and those really old trains that they used to have with the amazing patterns on the seats. And it's really geometric um, yeah. like designs as well. This is so exciting though. It's like, it's so colourful. It's almost kaleidoscope of colour isn't it in this kind of patchwork effect it's Mm -hmm. wonderful such nice colours as well like this kind of real mustard yellow and then the real bottle green. There's some of my, well, some of our all-time yeah, colours. Yeah, I was thinking it would really colours. good curtains in our house. Yeah. Really <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're really obsessed with orange, green and yellow. Yeah. And so this would really yeah, fit in quite well. Yeah. And Marianne Straub was such an expert in colour combinations mm. and weaves. She did loads of fabrics, really hard-wearing, woven, power-woven fabrics that were used not just on the buses, but also in hospitals. Mm. Quite a lot of fabrics were sold to the NHS to be used on chair seat coverings that kind of stuff as Mm. well it's so lovely as well the idea that something so colorful and joyful would be produced for something like an nhs setting like that's so important isn't it absolutely yeah completely 
So this piece here is called Kenilworth, and this is what's known as a three-pile velvet. So this is a really special object in our collection. We have only a handful of these, and there's actually probably only a really small amount of these actually worldwide. It's so sumptuous, isn't it? It looks so soft. I really want to touch it. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> I won't. It is. That's but. the worst thing with the velvets. They just look so touchable. Yeah. But yeah. So this dates from about 1914. And this is at the point where Frank Warner, who was one of the owners of Warner and Sons, was developing a technique to create this figured velvet that has three heights of pile on it. And that's a really difficult manufacturing process and something that hadn't been done since kind of the renaissance you had to be an absolutely specialist weaver in order to be able to uh, manufacture this kind of fabric and it costs a lot of money as well yeah pure silk and uh, these are really amazing because they have almost like a color changing ability so Mm -hmm. if you look at it from this end it looks like a really bright red Uh, yeah it does but if you look at it from the other end it's a really dark color God, that's amazing, oh, isn't God. it? Like, it's really incredible. So it's almost holographic. Yeah. Like it's the intensity. Like what sort of person or where would this have been? Okay, so these sorts of fabrics were primarily used by Frank Warner as a kind of a party piece when they went to exhibitions and trade shows to showcase the expertise of the company and the weavers that they could produce something on such an amazing quality. Just a showcase. It's of a showpiece, yeah, yeah, exactly, to show the technical ability of the weavers. I love how the design just kind of throws back to those Renaissance textiles as well, like those incredibly sumptuous Italian, kind of around Florence, those kind of cut velvets. Frank Warner created that loom in order to revive the extinct kind of production process. And when he died in 1930, the knowledge was kind of lost. So it really is between 1914 and 1930 that you actually have any examples of this in this kind of manner. Oh my gosh. Um, It's so much rarer, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's just nothing that can be produced again now. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Mm, Gorgeous. I think we're both big fans of velvet, aren't we? We've got velvet (laughs) curtains at home. Yeah, but I'm also a huge fan of printed textiles. That's the area I'm really kind of looking into at the moment. And I've been sort of thinking quite a lot about material culture and visual culture and how printed textiles kind of operate as both of those things. So printed textiles, obviously, you're right, they kind of track society a lot easier because if you're purchasing a velvet or a silk you're going to be having it in your home for a really long time because it's so expensive and it's usually a classic design that doesn't go out of style so Warner and Sons would have a huge amount of traditional floral motifs so that's what we were quite often really well known for and then when you move into screen printing and digital printing much later on you can then create things a lot quicker so you could be a little bit more experimental with your patterns as well which you can absolutely see in Mm. this design. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about this. We've got this incredible image of space on this textile. You've got planets, you've got what looks like a moon, and then this really exciting dynamic rocket moving all the way through it as well. Okay, so this really is a moment in time, a moment in history for uh, Warner and Sons and for the world, really. This is commemorating the moon landing in 1969. By a designer called Eddie Squires, he developed it from photographs actually of the Earth and the Moon that were taken during the flight and produced it into this screen-printed cotton fabric that was sold by Warner and Sons. 
Oh, it's so cool. I love it. And even the, you know, down the salvage where you've got the printing of Eddie Squire's Warner's the actual type that's used looks so 1960s. Like mm-hmm. The whole thing is such a perfect 60s vision of the future. It's amazing. I it's love so it. It's so nice seeing that part of it as well that you wouldn't have seen when it was made up into something mm-hmm. and sold, being able to see that extra bit of detail with the designer's name and the name of it, Lunar Rocket. This wasn't a big seller, funnily yeah. enough. I mean, it's not really a timeless <laughs> textile design. <laughs> it's huge <laughs> images of the earth from space, you know. Again, a bit like the triple pile velvet, the three pile velvet in the early part of the century. This was a party piece. Right. It was uh, showing Warner and Sons being innovative, new designs, you know, the depth of the creativity that could go into printed fabrics. And who was Eddie Squires? Do you have more information about him? Yeah, he was a designer at Warner's for around 30 years, actually. So he joined in the early 60s and he became design director later on during his career. And he really did produce some exciting out there textiles, a bit like this. He had a huge amount of creativity and design knowledge. Oh, it's amazing to see it close up. Mm Mm-hmm. Because you can see all the overprint in there as well, which mm-hmm. is really interesting in terms of, like, technically, like, stuff that I've done before in terms of fabric design would have always been screen printed. Mm-hmm. It's more sort of, like, direct printing now. But even something like that, looking at, it looks like it might be three or four colours, mm-hmm. which is amazing in terms mm-hmm. of the process of screen printing, actually creating something that looks like an eight or nine colour print. Mm-hmm. In a print that only has four screens, so there's a physical process of every colour you have to pull the ink through the screen to produce that you can only do four pulls but you can get something that looks like it could potentially have well anything upwards of eight colors in it so that overprinting process which it seems that they've employed here makes something that has so much depth and so many different colors in it out of something that's actually in this case would be a cheaper process to produce it's really great I think it's always so interesting when you go to somewhere that has such a lot of the industrial heritage of the area Mm. in a museum. Yeah, and something that you recognise or notice, finding out exactly where it came from and was developed. Definitely, yeah. So we're just walking through the museum now. Ooh, this is interesting. I can see a coffin on some kind of cart that looks like it would have been pulled by a horse, which makes me think we've entered the morning section. Hello. Hi. Hello. I'm John, John Miners. Nice to meet you both. John, nice to meet you. Hello, I'm Amber. Hello, I'm Rob. Amber. Hello, Rob. And so what's your connection with the Braintree Museum and this area that we're in now in particular? Well, up until a few weeks ago, I was a trustee of the museum, but I've been working with textiles all my life. I left school and worked for Courtaulds, and uh, I then moved into interior textiles, and uh, it's something that I absolutely love. What was your job at Courtaulds? Oh, I did all sorts of things. I started off just as a general sort of trainee, working in the three mills that we had here at Bocking, Braintree and Halstead, and I quickly discovered that I was useless at anything practical. (laughs) Um, But then I ended up doing um, various jobs, quality control and things like that, and... uh, I'm one of those lucky people who can honestly say I love my work and, uh, well, I've still not given up, really. Wow, amazing. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> that's so good. And it's called 
is sort of really the company that we're looking at here in this it section is of the indeed. museum, isn't it? Yeah, really yeah. important I mean, company for this I mean, area. Obviously, the, the area is quite important as a textile area, going back to the Middle Ages. Talking about the Courtaulds, they were Huguenots. They were French Protestants who settled in the UK after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1689. But the first member of the family who got involved with textiles was George. George was born in 1761 in Spitalfields and he was apprenticed as a silk throaster. Now throwing silk is where you take the thread as it comes in from say China or India and you double it or you quadruple it so that you can actually weave, make a yarn that's thick enough to weave with and that's what silk throwing is. They were amazingly successful very very quickly and they quickly moved from just throwing silk into manufacturing cloth And the cloth that they were so successful with was this. And this is an original sample of the black silk mourning crate. Mm. Right. Everybody thinks that it's all to do with Prince Albert dying and Victoria going to mourning, which she did. Mm. But it was the done thing before that. Right. It was the done thing before that. But the whole thing about it is, and how they got the crepe effect, is that they would twist the silk both clockwise. So one thread would be clockwise, the next thread would be anti-clockwise. Very, very highly twisted, so that when the cloth was wetted to dye, the two twists would react against each other and they would create the characteristic crepe effect. I love, like, touching this crepe, this silk crepe. It's so soft, but also really warm as Mm. well. Incredibly warm, isn't it? But it also doesn't feel like we think of silk. Silk Mm. we tend to think of is very smooth and very soft. And um, this is hard. Would this have only been used for mourning or would they have done, they wouldn't have done different colours for different No, 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 no. They they specialised in doing black silk mourning crepe. And it's so interesting. Firstly, like it's this amazing kind of matte black, Mm. which makes it perfect for Mm. morning. There's Mm. like no shine to it. But weren't there also lots of kind of rumours spread about crepe? Like people said it was unlucky to keep it in the house and things like that. So that you would, it just like really kept the industry, Mm. that black branch of the textile trade. And also if you you look back at the length of time that you were expected to be in mourning, a widow for her husband could be in full mourning for anything up to 18 months. And it would mean that the dress was completely covered in this black mm. silk crepe. And it was considered unlucky to keep the same crepe, as you say, mm. for another member of the family who died. So that's why Courtois did so well out of it. Yeah. You think he started in 1816. By 1851, he'd made enough money to buy Gosfield Hall, which is a big stately home about four or five miles away from here, with 2,000 acres of land. Wow. It was tremendously successful. Yeah. And there were lots of morning warehouses, mm. like around Regent yeah, Street, yeah. whole kind of almost like department stores just Mm, for mourning that would you know have the sort of coffins and the plumes for the horse that would take the funeral cart you know all kinds of stuff the black edged stationery remarkable oh it was it's fantastic seeing all of this and we're very lucky in Braintree that we have got so much of it survives because the other thing about the Courtauld family yes they were very very successful but they had this non-conformist philosophy of philanthropy as well like the Cadburys and the Roundtrees they were fantastic really they set up a, a very very early creche if you like as well that the girls could leave their children with and they had permission to go and feed their children mm. halfway through the day or whatever they set up a reading room they set up um, it's more progressive than a lot of companies now and it's also it's a name that I think most people recognise also because of the Courtauld Institute of Arts which was foundational not only in terms of sort of art history Mm. but in terms of the development of dress history as a you know developing Mm. as a branch of art history the Courtauld is really important in that story oh absolutely yeah and and it was Samuel Courtauld IV who bequeathed his house which is now Hume House of course but that was where the Courtauld started before they moved to Somerset House 
And of course, that was off the back of all the money that had been made, not out of mourning crate by then, but of course, the fact that they were the biggest producers of artificial silk in the country. So what they did was they engaged this man called Tetley from a company in Bradford called Listers. But the big thing he did was he persuaded the board in 1905 to buy the patents to produce artificial silk using the viscose process. Mm. And, uh, and it went from there. And they made millions, Amazing. literally. And there, is there anything about the artificial silk on display here that we can there see? There are some pieces in some of the um, display cabinets you can see here. And look at all of these samples, yeah. the Courtauld samples. The colours are amazing. Yeah, they'll be, they'll be from the 1970s. Lirel, which is the one that's closest to you, that was Courtauld's own polyester yarn that they developed. Oh, they're nice, aren't they? Yeah, with all the so reference nice. numbers on And look at these well. dresses here. Yeah. Oh, silk crepe dresses. These are gorgeous. One in mustard and one in magenta. This is amazing. So really, you can see that the, obviously the fashion for mourning is long gone by this point. You've got these gorgeous <laughs> there is, colours. There is a theory that the phrase crepe de chine was in fact developed by Courtauld's in the 1920s. Oh, really? Or, or the 1910s, rather. There's an amazing hand-drawn Isn't Courtauld's, that lovely? Which looks, it's through a window, right? Gold lettering for, and black window, shadow, sorry, it says yeah. on there. Oh, wow. So that would have been for a sign? That would have been for a sign. From 30th of June, 48. 1948, yeah. And of course, you know, Courtauld's became a huge multinational concern. They grew and grew and grew. They set up their own manufacturing of artificial silk in the USA in the 1920s. One of the things after, in the Second World War, the American Senate said that they weren't prepared to authorise the funding to the UK unless any... American companies that were wholly owned by British shareholders were transferred to American shareholders. George Courtauld, who lives near here, he said, oh, I've got a letter that um, Winston Churchill wrote to my father in about 1940. <laughs> he said, it's he, he, worse to the effect of, well, of course, it's up to you, George, whether you uh, sell American viscose to the American government. But he said, if you don't, we won't win the war. And oh, as he said, no, no pressure. No, no pressure. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> wow. Should we go through to the Warner Gallery? Yes, let's go. So this is the Warner Gallery at the museum. God, this building's so beautiful, isn't it? Ceilings are so high, aren't they? Oh, wow. Oh, so all kinds of textile designs, again, we're seeing all over the walls. This is fantastic. With drawers that you can pull out with swatches of fabric. And there's the, the Last Supper screen printed with some extra details added so we've got the pyramids in there in the background is that the, the arc tower of babel must be, must in be. there as well there's the moon landing oh well spotted <laughs> yes so we've got a spaceman <laughs> and the moon that we can see landed on there in amongst all these biblical scenes i love this it's so self-referential it's obviously a very famous image of the mm. last supper and then in the background, just these references to their previous designs. I love it. It's really interesting sort of translating something that's a painting into this applied design approach. So you've got how do you break this design up? How do you turn it into different colours? So actually reducing this down has made it so much more graphic. Mm, Yeah, that's really true. It almost looks like it's been rendered as like a cartoon or something. So it becomes almost posterised and really stylised. And so it's a really interesting reinterpretation of it. 
So do you, I wonder if this carpet on the floor is a design of, of theirs as well. Yeah. It's a 1974 screen-printed cotton, again by Eddie Squires, who did the Lunar Landing design we looked at. I love that there's so many drawers in here. Like, the room is sort of surrounded by plan chests and you can just open the different drawers and look through them. Oh, these woven fabrics are Amazing. so nice. Seeing all these different secrets in here. Ooh. Oh, wow. So this one is Marion Dawn, power woven cotton and rayon tissue, 1938. Oh, so nice. So this is oh, it really looks 1930s, isn't it? This kind of duck egg blue yeah. is a colour you really, really associate with that era, especially when it's teamed with this not quite black. It looks like really, really dark brown, mm. doesn't it? And those two colours together are so kind of Art Deco design. Absolutely. And I think it's really interesting that you're now getting these sort of abstract designs in there as well, being influenced by the design movements of the time. Mm. Ooh. Sparkly. <laughs> it was a midnight sky for a second then. Oh, wow. So this is Marianne Straub again. It's called Silverton. One of the first mass-produced designs to use Lurex. So that's why it's so sparkly. <laughs> oh, I see. So Lurex is... It's, got, it's that sort of metallic... I mean, it's exactly what you can see cloth. here that's yeah. giving it that sort of sparkly texture wow. to it. So this design was used at the Royal Society of Arts in 1953 through to 1981. I didn't actually realise Lurex was used that early. Wow. That's really interesting. Oh, it's nice to have a sit down now. It's nice to see you're doing some colouring in. Yeah, I've got the crayons out and having a go at making my own ladybird book now. <laughs> What's been your favourite thing that we've seen today? I think it's been really interesting just to see the practitioners designers and craftspeople behind some of these objects that we're really familiar with whether that's a ladybird book or some of these textiles uh, that we might have interacted with on the tube or the buses or whatever so i think it's amazing to see the level of skill and the amount of people and craftspeople that are involved in developing these designs and objects mm. what about it, you well i mean it's just been so good for me coming here because i've been meaning to come to the textile archive for years anyway so actually that Eddie Squires moon landing textile at the archive was amazing. And then just seeing the Courtauld heritage here as well is so fascinating. And seeing how much money it kind of brought to the area as well. I mean, to the family, obviously, which, you know, we still have that legacy and things like the Courtauld Institute, things like that. So, you know, the idea that the death of people in the 19th century led to things like the creation of the Courtauld Institute. I think it's really, really interesting. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think thinking about the way these towns are developed around one particular industry and how that changes depending on whether they can adapt in certain ways is a really interesting thing, the sort of rise and fall of some industries in particular places. And as you said, how that's interwoven, if you excuse the pun, um, <laughs> into the whole history of the town and the prosperity of that. Into the fabric of the town, you if might you say. If you will. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to learn, I think, from somewhere like this, somewhere like the Braintree mm. Museum. You know, practices from the past that should be reintroduced into working practices, whether it's about use of materials or whether it's the treatment of the people that work for you. But I really think there's a lot to learn here. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Meet Me at the Museum. With me, Amber Butchart. And me, Rob Flowers, at the Braintree Museum. 
If you like this episode of the podcast, you can leave us a review or recommend to a friend. And don't forget, you can show your love for museums with a National Art Pass. It gives you great benefits to hundreds of venues whilst raising money to support them. 